friend and longtime supporter of Canada 2020. He's an internationally recognized Canadian economist, public policy leader, sustainability advocate, and author. He serves as the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, Chair of Brookfield Asset Management and Head of Transition Investing, and previously, Governor of the Bank of Canada and Governor of Bank of England. He has been on the front lines of how Canada and the world have responded to several of the most defining challenges that this century has seen so far, and few leaders have made such a positive and extensive contribution to shaping public policy in Canada and throughout the world. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to the Chair of CAN2020's Advisory Board, Mark Carney. Great. Super. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Braden, for convening uh, such an extraordinary uh, group of experts, business leaders, community leaders, policymakers, uh, and innovators, uh, and all here uh, at the first Nope, that the first uh, Canada 2020 Net Zero Leadership Summit, uh, because it's your ideas and determination that will make real progress possible. And that's been the theme uh, throughout today is how do we translate frameworks and ideas into real action, real progress on the ground. We need to turn frameworks into actions and decarbonization into better jobs and more sustainable livelihoods and brighter futures for all Canadians. And these are outcomes that won't just happen because we need change in Canada and globally on the scale of the industrial revolution, but at the pace of the digital transformation. And that can only happen with the support of the people that we each in our own capacities serve. We need to harness market value, our dynamism, in the service of Canadian values of sustainability, of solidarity, and fairness to rewire, literally rewire, and rebuild our nation. Now to solve climate change, we must understand the nature of the problem. And you would have seen in the last few weeks, the IPCC estimates that the global carbon budget for one and a half degrees will be exhausted within a decade. Bottom line is internationally and here in Canada, we have left things very late. So we have three challenges, tragedy of the commons, tragedy of the horizon. And thirdly, there's been a drift across the Western world from moral sentiments of Adam Smith to the market sentiments of Milton Friedman. And in this, decisions are made according to simple utilitarian calculations. And too often, market values are taken to represent total value. And if a good or an activity isn't already in the market, such as the environment, it isn't valued. After all, markets rate the Amazon as one of the world's most valuable companies, but the value of the Amazon region appears on no ledger until it's converted into farmland. And this flattening of values encourages trade-offs of growth today and crisis tomorrow, of economics and health, of profit and planet. Now, one solution is to estimate the social costs and benefits of new initiatives. And a more fundamental approach is for society to set a clear goal that makes it profitable to be part of the solution and costly to remain part of the problem. And at the global level, that's what the UN summits that I go to as special envoy, the COPs, seek to uh, accomplish. 
Domestically, it's the nature of politics, both with a capital letter and a small letter. By bringing companies and communities together to manage our ecosystems and economy, the dynamism of the private sector can be unleashed to put value in the service of our values. So let me turn to a few lessons from how change has been driven at the global level to becoming, before coming more specifically to Canada. And the first should be obvious, but it took a few decades to learn. Net zero cannot be achieved by fiat or through binding agreements with penalties for non-compliance as was tried with Kyoto. And that's because most fundamentally the transition as we've heard and we all live it involves a fundamental transformation of our economies. Climate change may be a global problem, but it requires local solutions. The key breakthrough of the Paris Agreement is how it balances a clear global goal with national sovereignty over the policies necessary to achieve it. The second global lesson is the need for regular assessments of progress to create a healthy tension to upgrade efforts to achieve ambitious pledges. The third is that everyone needs to be involved, which is why the Paris Agreement brought in local governments, the private sector, and the financial sector. And what's happened in recent years is all of these foundations internationally at the global level have been built upon. The core objective, that clear goal, limiting temperature increases to less than two degrees with a stretch goal, which Canada pushed for, of one and a half, has been reinforced in recent years with a greater emphasis on the latter. The remorseless logic of climate physics, the need to achieve net zero within a finite carbon budget, has now entered the mainstream with near universal commitments by countries, and these targets are cascading down to companies and financial institutions turning the vague objective of sustainability into something that can be measured and managed. Now, later this year at the UAE COP, we will have the results of what's called the global stock take. So that's one of those measurement exercises. I can tell you now, it won't be pretty. And that should add to the necessary urgency. But I would draw some comfort from the second derivative. In other words, the rate of change in the rate of change. And this shows that the world is at an inflection point. Before Paris, seven years ago, climate policies were consistent with a trajectory of over three and a half degrees of warming by the end of the century. By Glasgow two years ago, country programs, NDCs they're called, were consistent with less than two and a half degrees and country commitments, if fulfilled, would limit warming to 1.8 degrees. Over the past five years, annual clean energy investment has risen three and a half times to 1.1 trillion US dollars. Now it has to quadruple again by the end of this decade to get the world on track. But new policies in the UK, in the EU, in the US are all now consistent with this ramp up. And now's the time for Canada to get to the head of that pack and it's within our grasp. In addition, the new imperatives of energy security and the sober realities of geopolitics are rewiring globalization. 
And as companies relocate production, they're seeking to reduce emissions. Access to clean energy at large scale is becoming a key determinant of country competitiveness. And this creates an enormous opportunity for energy superpowers like Canada. Of course, seizing it requires a plan. And one of the things I did learn during the financial crisis is that plan beats no plan. To address the climate crisis, governments, business, and financial institutions all must have transition plans. They all must assess progress regularly and enact quickly to close any gaps. And for governments, this process begins with a clear commitment to achieving net zero consistent with one and a half degrees. And to incentivize and track progress, they need interim targets, as Canada has done with our 40 to 45 percent reduction by 2030. And they also need to set clear goals for sectors and technologies, and I'll come back to that. These can't be abstract exercises. Our goals, our climate goals, need to be anchored in social and economic progress, new jobs for workers, economic reconciliation with First Nations, better futures for our children. This room knows that policies must combine carrots and sticks. We also need independent oversight bodies to assess the adequacy of measures so the public can monitor progress in real time, hold governments to account, and encourage better ways forward. Finance is a, an enabler. It's a catalyst that can speed the transition. But I know enough about chemistry, and I don't know much more than what I'm about to say. Um, but catalysts need the underlying components, which for climate start with the power of people demanding change, extend to the policies of governments, and crucially rely on the energy and innovation of entrepreneurs, businesses, and civil society. So in this context, ask, does Canada have what it takes to lead? Well, we start rightly with clear objectives. Our national goal, net zero 2050, the 40 to 45% reductions on 2005 levels by 2030. And critically, as we've been discussing, we're building the intermediate sectoral objectives that rightly have timelines that are just long enough, just long enough to achieve them, but short enough that everyone, everyone must act. We can create the industries and the jobs of the future with the skills and the people of the present. It will be expensive and rightly uh, made this challenge. Uh, let's be clear about cost. It will be expensive, but companies and all levels of government must invest their present cash in, in order to build the future. The second leg in terms of assessing where Canada is, and this is another positive, is credible and predictable policy that drives uh, climate action. A few years ago, I did some research with Janet Yellen when she had more time on her hands, um, and it found that the more credible and predictable government climate policies are, the more that investors will finance in anticipation, creating a virtuous cycle uh, that finances large-scale investment, faster decarbonization, more jobs, faster growth, and in the end, smoother transition. And that credibility 
can only be built through a track record of increasingly specific and ambitious policy actions and combined with rigorous and timely assessments of progress. I'd suggest that Canada is now on the cusp of that virtuous circle, if we can execute over the course of the next five years. It will pay dividends for decades. A comprehensive Canadian climate policy framework is being built. It's founded on the carbon price. It's soon to be bolstered by contracts for differences, complemented by tax credits that are technology neutral and funds for the development of climate solutions from hydrogen to direct air capture. You know, it goes to a basic point about what we need, which is that the climate policy debate be grounded in expected outcomes, not competing slogans. We need a competition of ideas. This is very much an and world in terms of how to address climate change. We need a competition of ideas, not a denial of purpose. And if someone proposes to repeal something, they should have to replace it with something at least as effective. If politicians are going to put carbon back into the atmosphere with one hand, they should take more out with the other. Doing anything less is to rob Canadians of the future they deserve. Uh, like many of you, um, I'm active in these issues around the world. I think I have a fairly uh, decent sense of what's going on. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm absolutely convinced, and the numbers back this up, the world is at an inflection point. There are literally walls of money and effort that are chasing opportunities around the world and turning them into jobs. The clean revolution's taking shape from Melbourne to Mumbai, from New York to Nairobi. But I'll tell you something. Every one of those places wants to be here. They'd trade places with us in a heartbeat, given where we start. Nowhere else can match what Canada brings to the table. Our people, our resources, our capital, and our values. We're headed for the better future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. I think really setting up even further conversations on this throughout the afternoon. And to take us right into that, we have Delia Cristea, Partner and General Counsel and Sustainability Lead for Power Sustainable to join Mark on stage now for a conversation. Thank you, Delia. Good afternoon, everyone. I realize I have a very, very privileged task to channel the common 200 questions here to the climate guru of Canada. I think the hardest task uh, in talking, well, the, the, the hardest part in talking about climate change is uh, feeling the enormity of the task, as you mentioned, and the urgency of it requires uh, collaboration across sectors from the public, from the private sector, from NGOs, as well as from the policymakers. Um, you've also heard earlier today that Canadians feel that the climate targets are important, but they also feel hopeless or disengaged. For a while, we've heard the doom and gloom scenario, and it's very important to hear it because uh, it did build public awareness around the enormity of the task. However, I think it's also important to maybe try to shift the conversation, give hope and give solutions and try to move forward in that respect. And Mark, you've been doing an amazing job internationally, but here locally for a while now in that respect. So 
I wanted to maybe bring some of the themes together from today and move in that direction of giving hope, but also acknowledging the challenge and seeing the next steps. So you talked about the opportunity there, but I wanted to maybe deep dive on it from what you've heard today, from when we are going to be talking today. Where are the big opportunities for Team Canada? Heather, that one's going to be catchy. I think it's a one for the future. So it's good. One for the present. Um, yeah. Which is uh, which is the key point, and which is why everyone's here, uh, Delia, and what you're doing uh, with power is uh, the future is now, and now's the time to act. So I think that's the first element of the opportunity because acting uh, means, in many respects, and it's been implicit in a number of the discussions today, but it means investment on a very large scale. Um, and I'm enough of a I know more about macroeconomics than I know about chemistry, uh, at least I purport to. Um, and that will bring very large multiplier benefits to the economy. Um, it will bring growth, um, and it can bring confidence if Canadians see that as part of a solution for uh, a bigger result. And I'll make a key point. Um, one, just, well, this isn't a key point, but just to dimension that, and John Stackhouse and others uh, uh, have, have done work on this, there's various, but I, I'll appeal to your numbers, uh, $2 trillion of investment that we're going to need uh, it's those orders of magnitude uh, between now and uh, 2050 to get there with a, a, ideally uh, a substantial proportion of that front end loaded because uh, that's how we start to break the back. Um, so uh, I think it I think it very much uh, it very much starts with that and the recognition that the doom and gloom or the concerns about the underlying issue uh, that is very well grounded on on unaddressed climate change, to be absolutely clear. Um, in the absence of any plans, any action, people then move to just say no, stop, divest, and, you know, go to source, which it, in my judgment, uh, isn't a sustainable solution. Um, and, um, as well, what it needs to happen. So it isn't a sustainable solution, but it has to be displaced by um, by clear plans, clear progress, et cetera. And then the last point is that it means that we have to ramp up the solutions before we shut down uh, the legacy uh, legacy activities that uh, are contributing to the problem. Um, and again, that all loops back into a lot of investment now, measurable progress uh, that Canadians can see, um, not just in emissions numbers, but close to home uh, in jobs, uh, growth, revenue. Thank you. And we, the opportunities are there for the financial sector as well. We're very pleased. There's lots to do, lot, uh, lots, uh, lots of work ahead. One of the challenges that we were talking about this morning is indeed the disengagement from the Canadian public that actually ends up in being uh, a disengaged public is a polarized public. It's uh, one uh, that, that will create issues in terms of talent retention and economic growth and innovation. So that's one of the challenges. How do you see that being addressed? And also, what are the other challenges that you can see that need to be addressed right away? So, I, well, let's, may I just hone in, may I just hone yeah. in on the first part of your question, because I think that's the, that's the critical one. Ultimately, um, and I, I said said this, uh, and not just ultimately in real time as much as possible, we need to deliver alongside the climate goals, social uh, and economic outcomes that Canadians recognize they see on the ground and they deserve. 
Uh, and one of the principles around that and one of the ways in order to do that, as I said a moment ago, which is that, you know, it's a global problem, but all solutions are local and that there has to be local participation in the solution. One of the big emphasis is to ensure that rightly, uh, the people of the North and First Nations are participating in these projects and in these solutions. And so that they're seeing the benefits up front. I will give you a different example of the same point, uh, which is that in Europe, you see this in the UK, you see this in Spain, you'd be well aware of this. Um, but if you can see a clean energy solution, you get a discount. If where you live, if you can see the windmill, you can see the solar array, uh, uh, the pumped hydro, you get a discount on your electricity price. You get an immediate tangible benefit. It's not that hard to do uh, that. We need to be building in uh, the returns. Now, of course, what people want more than a discount, they also want uh, jobs and, uh, and livelihoods that come off that. Um, but to ensure as much as possible comes back into the local. And if I can extend that one way to a meta point um, or a mega project, if I can put it that way, to my way of thinking, with respect to the pathways, I'll use that terminology around addressing scope one, scope two in the oil sense, which we absolutely have to do. Um, that's why it makes sense for substantial federal fiscal resources through a contract for difference or other things goes to one of the richest areas in the country because you have a general principle of investing where the challenges are and the solutions need to come. That makes sense. And I'm going to segue into something that's ultimately related. You have talked for a long time now about the, and even earlier today, about the cultural shift that's required in terms of the definition of value in order to deliver on the climate um, targets. Um, and I believe there's growing social consensus. We heard it this morning again about uh, the importance of reaching the targets. What do you think is the role of the policymaker, though, in that cultural shift and in reaching the targets? And I'll segue on, actually, I'll replicate Jerry's question, which is a very good one. I, how, how realistic is it to build the political consensus to deliver on the policy goals? Well, I think, so we shouldn't torture the political consensus too much, I think. <laughs> Uh, in, in, in the following respect. Here we, we're meeting here today where we've had um, consistent voting patterns of Canadians uh, to address the issue. Of course, Canadians don't, nor should they be expected to have all the solutions to how to address it, but they want the issue addressed. Uh, that We've seen that uh, consistently. It's the law of the land, uh, is the law to uh, achieve the uh, uh, 2050 targets. And the political process should rightly be competing about how to do it. And what I was saying up there is one of the uh, ways that Canadians can properly participate in this is through objective assessments of our collective progress towards it. As I say, we saw something this morning from the CCI, which gave uh, you know some encouraging direction. Of course, some of those measures, rightly, and they caution on that, are are, are planned but not implemented, and you know, all a lot of this is in the execution. But Canadians should have that information uh, to hand, and if, as there should be, different uh, parties, uh, federally, provincially, municipally, are proposing different 
approaches, uh, we should be able to judge whether they're going to be relatively effective or not. Um, and there is no one solution to get there. There are multiple solutions. And the competition within the political process, just like the competition within the market, um, should be on different ways uh, to, to achieve this. But respecting the consensus of Canadians, which after all is, I believe, fundamentally rooted in our values, which are uh, around solidarity, inclusion, fairness, and sustainability. Uh, and uh, and not free riding on uh, a problem. Um, those are hopeful words, and which which we need in. So, final words of wisdom for Team Canada. Uh, uh, final words of wisdom for Team Canada. Look, I think that you know we. I, I again, I'm gonna I'm gonna end where I began up there, which is to thank everyone in this room um, for what you're doing, for taking your time to come here today. You represent. Team Canada, um, the the biggest uh, maybe message I'd underscore, you would all feel this, is that you also represent hundreds and thousands of other people across this country that are thinking about these issues and thinking of ways uh, uh, to address it. And it's the sum of all those efforts, all that brain power, ingenuity, determination, which uh, gives me great optimism that... Uh, yeah, we're we are going to be on the, we're going to be on the podium, like the Oilers, not on the <laughs> golf course, not on the golf course like some other team that I won't mention, but Heather did. Back to collaboration. Back to collaboration. Back to collaboration, which is the next stage, and you're setting it up for us. Yeah, perfect. Thank, Thank you, much.